Welcome, everyone. Please uh, take a moment to orient yourself to be uh, grounded and aware and present, as we sometimes say, in, in Zazen, and we'll sit together for a few minutes to open the space for, uh, for inquiry.
And if you would uh, recite the verse of the robe with me three times, as we, we do, and the recitation isn't just about the content, it's also about the embodied, you feel and hear yourself entering the teachings that it offers. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction, wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction, wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction, wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. Good to be with you today as always. And today is, um, as many of you know, um, at least here in the United States, I know there are a number of you with us from uh, Canada and the UK and other places. But here in the United States, this day sits between yesterday, which was the celebration of the life of Martin Luther King Jr. and tomorrow's inauguration of a new United States president. And so it's quite an unusual day in which we sit at inquiry today. And these two days honor the qualities, uh, certainly MLK day, we, we call it, um, honoring the qualities of that man who dedicated his life to making uh, a real difference and whose wholehearted efforts um, based and founded in his own spiritual life were in the service of freedom and nonviolence and justice. Tomorrow, we'll be engaging in a, a unique version of celebrating what is to come. And I hope what might come with a new day. And not insignificantly, with a woman being inaugurated as our vice president and a woman of color stepping into leadership in a role that might not have been occupied in this same way without the work of Dr. King and all the people and all the generations of people who took part in that work and who are still taking part in this work to continue uh, his promise. So it's an, it's an annual tradition for me, it's, it's a personal tradition that the, the Tuesday of inquiry which follows MLK Day, I reflect on what I call the Dharma of Dr. Martin Luther King. And I'd like to do this again today. And the way that I'd like to do it is to take a brief look at a speech I'd not spent time with before, which is the speech he gave on the acceptance of the Nobel Prize on December 10th, 1964. I also didn't realize it's insignificant in a way, but that um, that was my 13th birthday, December 10th, 1964. So I'm gonna take just a tiny bit from his acceptance speech, not his uh, lecture he gave the next day on the 11th. But before that, pause for just a moment. Because in doing so, uh, in reflecting on his words and, and the Dharma of what comes through and the, the kind of work that Dr. King 
uh, supported. You remember that I'm, I'm not here to teach Buddhism or, or even Zen. Those are the traditions, uh, some of the traditions in which I trained and found some, some wisdom and found ways to cultivate my own, my own spiritual path and the path of others. But I'm here to join you in a deep inquiry into the path of liberation from unnecessary suffering. You know, we chant, vast is the robe of liberation. We don't start with a chant that says, great are the Buddha's teachings. They are, but so are other, other teachings, which also are liberative, including what Dr. King echoed. Vast is the robe of liberation, is a reflection of his vision. Liberation is what is all-inclusive, universal, just, and kind. That's the kind of liberation that he thought was possible, and it was vast. In fact, we also then, then say in the next line, a formless field of benefaction, this goodness isn't relegated to a particular form or color or race or ideology, but pervades everyone, everywhere, and is available to everyone if, and this is a very big if, we engage what we say in the next line, wearing the universal teaching. We're reminded to embody the teachings, which can seem um, lofty if they just remain as ideology or philosophy or theology. But wearing, embodying the teachings through our everyday actions, through our speech, the way we operate in the world, expresses this realization. We understand that the, what holds us is this robe of liberation, that it's a formless field of benefaction available to everyone. And if we can wear these teachings, if we can embody them so that we can then carry them forward and express them, then we can, the next line, realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. And this is the promise of practice. This is the hope of what we can continue to unfold if we dedicate our lives to these practices. This isn't a belief, but an action. And not for ourselves alone, but for all beings everywhere. So here's just a few reflections on Dr. King's acceptance speech. I'm not going to share the whole speech. It's very easy for you to find online. Uh, you can read the record of it. You can see the recording of it. But these are the, the bits of Dharma that, that came to me and really touched me as I read through it. He starts by saying he's going to accept the word on behalf. And then he goes through a number of, of people and organizations and groups. He accepts this very powerful and important and respected award on behalf of other people. He didn't say, thank you for awarding this to me. It's on behalf of others. This is the Bodhisattva turn. We say in one translation of our pure precepts, I vow to live and be lived for the benefit of all beings. You dedicate one's life to the benefit of all. So your life will be in service. And he starts with the acceptance of this amazing um, award by saying, I accept this award on behalf. This award goes to everyone everywhere. And then throughout the next bit of his talk, he says, I am mindful twice. And he makes lists of the things he's mindful of. He, this repeated mindful 
practice is the foundation of our lasting transformation and awakening. And he reminds us of that, that this is the foundation of his work too, mindfulness. And after repeating that mindfulness is the foundation of how he's entered the work for which he's honored, he says, after contemplation, I conclude. He didn't say after struggling, after thinking, after much writing, after putting my life on the line. He says, after contemplation, I conclude. So he indicates that mindfulness and contemplation are what comes first. And mindfulness being the foundation and orientation of our practice. And zazen, which not maybe thought of exactly as contemplation, is a reflective meditative approach, a prayerful approach to life. And what's the conclusion of this mindful practice that he mentions, this deep contemplation and the bodhisattva's turn? Because in the beginning of his speech, he sets a stage, which is dharmic. His words are, this conclusion, after contemplation, I conclude, nonviolence is the answer to the crucial political and moral question of our time, the need for all people to overcome oppression and violence without resorting to violence and oppression. His conclusion is that nonviolence is the answer to the crucial political and moral question of our time. This, uh, he said this 57 years ago. And it's equally important on this day between the celebration of his life and the inauguration. Nonviolence is the answer to the crucial political and moral question of our time. The need of all people to overcome oppression and violence without resorting to violence and oppression. And the, the Buddha's words, hatred will not cease by hatred, but by love alone. This is the ancient law. Hatred will not cease by hatred, but by love alone. This is the ancient law. He goes on further after indicating that he's accepting the award actually on behalf of others by being mindful and contemplating, concluding that nonviolence is what overcomes oppression and violence, not more violence. He says civilization and violence are antithetical concepts. And he reminds us in his words, nonviolence is not sterile passivity, but a powerful moral force which makes for social transformation. A method which rejects revenge, aggression, and retaliation. The foundations of such a method is love. So human civilization and violence are antithetical concepts. And here we sit in this time, in this moment. But as we've said many times, nonviolence is not sterile passivity, but a powerful moral force that makes for social transformation, which rejects so much of what we've seen recently, revenge, aggression, and retaliation. And the foundation of this method is love. In the lecture that Dr. King gave the, in the following day, he quoted the great historian, Arnold Toynbee. And this is a quotation that he pulled from Toynbee's work. Love is the ultimate force that makes for the saving choice of life and good against the damning choice of death and evil. Therefore, the first hope and our inventory must be the hope that love is going to have the last word. Through contemplation, this is uh, Dr. King's conclusion. When he says the foundation of our method is love, 
Toynbee says love is the ultimate force. That love is the last word. Back to the Nobel Prize acceptance speech, he says, we can no longer afford to worship the God of hate or bow before the altar of retaliation. The oceans of history are made turbulent by the ever-rising tides of hate. History is cluttered with the wreckage of nations and individuals that pursued this self-defeating path of hate. Love is the key to the solution of the problems of the world. And so they seem to be now. In our Metta Sutta, in the Sutra of Loving Kindness that we often chant in our tradition, there's a segment that says, even as a mother at the risk of her life watches over and protects her only child, so with a boundless mind should one cherish all living things, suffusing love over the entire world, above, below, and all around without limit. So let one cultivate an infinite good will toward the whole world. And here we have in our ancient Dharma refrain echoing this same direction, the same practice. Continuing his Dharmic teaching and bringing it home, he says, I accept this award today with an abiding faith in America and an audacious faith, audacious, excuse me, in the future of mankind. I refuse to accept despair as the final response to the ambiguities of history. How many of us can say we accept, not an award, but we accept this day in our circumstance with abiding faith in our community, in our country, in our nation, in our sangha, and an audacious faith in the future of mankind, of humankind, He said, I refuse to accept despair as the final response to the ambiguities of history. I would imagine if we could all see each other right now, and I said, raise your hand if you felt despair within the last week, the last month, the last year. Many of you might raise your hand along with me. And he's reaffirming his practice, which we do every time we sit down, every time we engage some of these chants every time we come to inquiry. I accept this day with an abiding faith in our community and an audacious faith in the future of what's possible. Refusing to accept despair as the final response to anything and to the ambiguities of history of, uh, of our life. This is taking refuge. This is the Dharma of taking refuge. Over and over, there, rather than being dragged further into the suffering and drama born of our own personal narratives, our emotional reactions, our embodied trauma or pain, this is taking refuge in, in Buddha, our, our wakefulness, not a historical figure, but in wakefulness itself, in Dharma, in the truth of how things unfold, in Sangha, in our beloved community, as he called it. This is the faith, the abiding faith and the audacious faith is taking refuge. And then a key phrase. He said, I believe that unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word in reality. This is why right, temporarily defeated, is stronger than evil, triumphant. There's a lot in that poetic phrase, those two sentences. He has a, this abiding faith and audacious faith. He says, I have a belief that unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word in reality. 
this has seemed to be in short supply, hasn't it? And yet it's what's available to all of us if we cultivate, if, that big if, if we embody these teachings. This is why right, temporarily defeated, is stronger than evil, triumphant. He goes on to say, I believe that what self-centered, he says, men, people have torn down. Persons who are other-centered can build up. And this is our bridge today. What self-centered men have torn down, people who are other-centered can build up. And nonviolent redemptive good will proclaim the rule of the land. Let's certainly hope so. That's the vow. That's the promise our leaders make. But is it the promise we make? Is it how we live our life? That's, that's where it matters. This is what we chant at the end of our time in inquiry, not holding to self-centered thoughts. And I would say actions, delusions. Because holding to self-centered thoughts, only suffering. Self-centered people tear down our civilization. Other-centered people build it up. And that's the focus of our practice. The Buddha was really involved in creating a new civilization, not just some religion. And then in Dr. King's speech, he goes further towards the end. He takes refuge even more deeply. He says, I accept this award in the spirit of a curator of some precious heirloom, which he holds in trust for its owners. All those to whom beauty is truth and truth beauty and in whose eyes the beauty of genuine, genuine brotherhood and sisterhood and peace is more precious than diamonds or silver or gold. So he's speaking in a theistic tone here. I accept this award in the spirit of a curator of some precious heirloom, which he holds in trust for its owners. I would say that acceptance is in the spirit of the curator of wakefulness, of truth. And the precious heirloom is a liberation, which is being held it's a formless field of benefaction in the robe of liberation, held in trust for its true owners, which is everyone, 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 without exception. All those to whom beauty is truth and truth is beauty. And in whose eyes, the beauty of genuine personhood and peace is more precious than diamonds or silver or gold. That this way of being together, of genuine care and inclusion and compassion for all is more important than power and wealth. So these are just the reflections I wanted to make on Dr. King's Dharma and how it also invites us to tomorrow and this transition. So it's not, I don't offer this uh, reflection as so much a political statement, and it's not the, the nature of inquiry necessarily to just reflect on, on politics, but it's a reflection on the larger field, the Bodhisattva turn that Dr. King embodied his foundation and his own spiritual faith, which he names comes from mindfulness and contemplation, which he expresses as nonviolence and a plea to not engage in violence and response to violence, knowing that it's a powerful moral force, not passivity, and that the foundation of that force is love which in, he says, will have the last word. And it's our saving choice. It's the key. 
which is the foundation of our own love and compassion in the Buddhist tradition. And that he expresses through the embodiment of that tradition an abiding faith and an audacious faith in, in our future and what's possible without falling into despair, taking refuge deeply, turning away from self-centered thoughts, self-centered ideas, and opening ourselves for the benefit of others, and knowing that in the process we're taking care of something that's a precious uh, heirloom that we pass on rather than destroying it, and that that's more precious than anything else uh, that we could ever own or have. And so in this spirit, then, that uh, I invite you to reflect on your own practice and your own life. Uh, does your own life embody these kind of principles of dharma? Do you practice the thing that will call forward love as the foundation? Where do you get caught in your own violence, either toward yourself or towards others? Do you feel a sense of inclusion and generosity in the way that you meet uh, the world? Because the robe of liberation is vast. This formless field of benefaction is what's the promise for all. If we wear the teachings, if we embody them, if we become them, it's not about believing in something. It's about becoming that. When the Buddha said, don't believe what I teach you, practice it and see if it's true so that you can embody it. In the Christian tradition of my youth, there was an emphasis on belief, which is not a problem unless you see it as other, but I took it more as can I not believe in, but can I like put on the mind of Christ? Can I become that? Can I embody it fully? And this is the harmonizing. This would harmonize as all being, not just beings, but all being. This is the harmony. This is the nonviolent. This is love having the last word. This is our, our dharma expressed in everydayness. But if there are difficulties with that, questions about that, barriers to that, that's what we inquire into. And that's what uh, I'd like to meet. So please raise your hand and please come forward so that we can uh, deepen these teachings and embody them more fully in relationship. Hello, Matt. Hey, Flint. Hello, everyone. Um, thanks for your talk today. It was it felt um, as it always does. Really, um, it hit the, maybe hit the nail on the head. Um, I guess one of the. Um, ways something that prevents me from embodying um the dharma and this vast robe is um uh, romantic relationships a lot of times like if i start to like somebody and they like me back i completely lose it and become very insecure and um it, it causes like visceral reactions and it's it feels like such a tiny thing um, and like um i want to move past it so that i can um just be um more present to my life and um what's what's opening in you as you speak of it feels like a lot because um, I've, I've been uh, thinking about it pretty much nonstop and I haven't had much of an appetite and so I haven't been sleeping much so it's just like yeah uh, confusion. Because you look a little tremulous or like there's some emotion moving. Yeah. 
So you're, you're talking about what it's like to be a human. Yeah. And because of our deep um, attachments that come with being uh, loving animals, we can lose our way. And relationships, I'm getting a strange sound there. Uh, relationships and uh, love and erotic attraction, all of that are Dharma gates because they show us the places we can be easily caught. Um, and if, if love is the ultimate container, the precept about not misusing sexuality, not lying, not stealing, they're, they're all related. These are powerful Dharma gates that we stumble and, and make messes and clear them up and lose our way. And that's kind of how it goes for humans. What's it like as you hear what I'm saying? What's happening? It feels like I've stumbled a lot with this. Yeah, we do. We're all, we're all in that. And that's why when we stumble, sometimes it's important to have somebody's hand to reach out and help us up. So that we don't, stumbling is one thing, getting completely lost and digging the hole deeper as we try to dig ourselves out yeah. is, can be a problem. But this is a strong Dharma gate for you, the Dharma gate of uh, affection and love and sexuality and all of that, I'm sure. It's easy to lose our way. Yeah. But what you're doing now, it seems, is avowing it, saying, this is a struggle for me. This is an area where I know I fall off. And how can I transform this and sometimes that takes, um, it's what a, a good partner is for, to tell you the truth. Mm. You know, I certainly had my share of, of, of stumbles and failed relationships and embarrassing moments and, and terrible regretful things at times, I tell you. Um, but I also know that the particular partner I have right now, after 40 years, we've learned so much, not because it was perfect and right, but because we were both willing to keep stumbling together and keep helping each other. Mm. And sometimes I reached out to elders, like you're doing right now. Um, and sometimes, you know, you have a beer with a friend and say, oh my God. <laughs> Uh, and everything in between. Yeah. But, but keep turning toward um, these things. Um, a good relationship is a deep curriculum. <laughs> and so what you want is a worthy opponent. Someone they'll play at your level so you can both learn. Yeah. And so the, the primary contract is life is rough it's complicated you want to do this thing together it's not very romantic sounding <laughs> but it's the foundation it's like you want you want to do this thing okay let's go but if it's if you're only within yourself with your own fears and thoughts and longings and emotions and if you're just inside you'll feel crazy yeah mm -hmm. so thank you for your willingness and your transparency and your offering because other people are echoing and saying yay matt for bringing this up <laughs> it's hard it is hard yeah it is yeah. very hard i can see that quite the dharma gate and an opportunity to keep like uh feels like kind of to keep turning towards it and nurture those parts and yeah and it's a fierce one it's not an easy one yeah yeah so let yourself be supported and cared for in the process thanks okay
hope that Matt, make sure that you look in the chat. Uh, John, say, I think you're still muted there. there you yes, are. unmuted. Um, yes. Oh, it's so good to see you. Good to see you. And this is, I think, I don't know whether the words, uh, whether he's celebrating or what, the, the very first time I think I have uh, been in this seat. Yes, um, yes. You an inquiry. Yes. Um, I really appreciated your talk and uh, at least, I mean, for, for one reason, for learning more about Martin Luther King and, and his life. What stood out for me was the distinction between faith and hope. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, along with however many other people, have find myself hoping in relation to uh, the American election and, and things going on in, in the UK. And when I, when I think of the word hope, I... Uh, or, or, or when I'm hoping, I can often start pleading with, with fate. Yes. Uh, and, and also, when, when I think of the word hope, I, in an embodied sense, I sort of feel myself leaning forward and look at, looking forward to... Yes, yeah. And when I was holding the word faith, I felt... Yeah, it's more, it's more upright. Upright and in my seat. Yes, yes, yes. yes. And what, what actually set, set off that, um, that train of thought for me was the, somebody the other day uh, said to me, spoke to me about um, slaves in the United States and how they, despite everything that they had been through and were going through held and the word she used was a hope or you know some maybe some lost their hope and despair but some held a hope and I I was I've been wondering what that what that hope consisted in so I'd, I'd love your comments on on that on the <laughs> on on that hope and faith well, I echo your distinctions that you're coming for. I I don't feel qualified to speak for people of color in our, our country, of course, uh, but there is so much happening right now around this issue and so much beauty that's being written about and so many sources, which beyond just our talk today. Um, I. Uh, I think sometimes I actually did a talk last year on uh, hope is cruel about that kind of hope. If it's the childish pleading, longing hope, it's disempowering in a way. It doesn't mean we want to be hopeless. That's not, that's not what we're talking about, but there's a kind of a hope that is more like a child's pleading rather than um, a coming into our fullness and offering ourselves with, with, a, with a practice and with an aspiration, with a vow. This is, this mm. is where I'm going. Yeah, I, I think um, I'm still che chewing over uh, holding faith and um, will you you said not to be hopeless, mm -hmm. but if we let go, uh, uh, so I'll, I'll start what I'm saying again. If we let go of hoping, where does not hopeless come from? Wisdom and compassion. If we, because uh, if you think of that, let's, let's call it childish hopefulness, you know, that yeah. we let go of that, that's a self-centered position in which we actually don't have faith in our own Buddha nature. And if we start practicing, wisdom begins to show us what's actually true. Compassion helps us connect with each other to help that be verified. 
there's, uh, I'll say this as a reference for everyone who's listening, there's a wonderful book by Sharon Salzberg entitled Faith. And it's about a Buddhist understanding of, of faith. And she talks about uh, the initial faith being kind of like that hopeful, a little bit like what Matt's talking about, like falling in love. Oh, isn't this great? I have faith in Buddhism. And then after a while, it's kind of like, hmm, wait a minute. The honeymoon's over. I don't, it doesn't do that. And you can fall there into despair or hopelessness. And that's where a lot of people leave practice. If you make it through that sort of dark night, there's a deep questioning inquiry, which can lead us into an abiding faith in our true nature, not in a hope of something that's going to save us from the outside. Mm. Thank you. I, um, there's a lot yeah. to chew on. Sorry? There's a lot to chew on, as you said. There's a, a, a lot to chew on. I'm, I'm, I'll need to uh, li listen to the to the recording of, of this uh, because I yeah. Too. Yes, and thank you so much, John, for raising your hand and for coming forward. I know it's not an insignificant step, and I honor you for that. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for your good wishes for our country. <laughs> uh, yes, for you. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. And as we're transitioning here, um, for those of you who are unaware, uh, John is one of the senior uh, leaders of the, the Sangha in Sheffield, England, one of the early and most abiding students from there. Hi, Carolyn. Hi, Flint. I don't mean to interrupt you. You were talking about John. Oh, that's what I was going to say. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was just acknowledging John. Some people might not know him, so. And here you are in your great cap. Yes, due to the lack of hair I have now under the cap. Yeah, good. <laughs> but it works. Well, and something I um, have been struggling with that the talk really brought up was uh, it's honoring my bodhisattva vow to you know be kind and not create harm in the world, and you know really honoring trying to be open and loving. And then, you know, certain primary relationships in my life, particularly the relationship, um, I would say, with my parents, mm -hmm. which I have found there's a lot of harm in the relationship. Um, it, it has always been full of constraint um, and just doesn't feel good. It's not a kind of a natural, unconditional flow. And so it's that vow of how do you hold how do I hold my bodhisattva vow I took while also respecting the harm and hurt that sometimes people can create in you in the boundaries? Like I'm really teetering between mm -hmm. holding a vow, being loving, and also understanding that you can get repeatedly hurt. And how do you hold, like, how do you deal with all that? <laughs> There's a small question. How do you deal with all that? But here, what's the first line of the bodhisattva vow? Beings are numberless. I vow to free them. And then you talk about delusions are inexhaustible. Dharma gates are boundless. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. That's the vow. The vow is to see that people struggle. And they're having a hard time. And your vow is to practice for their benefit. Just like Dr. King said, I accept this on behalf. So if you see that your parents struggle and that struggle looks like harm, it's, it looks like limitations, it looks like not clear seeing, it looks like delusion, and the dealing with them looks like difficult Dharma gates, it's hard to keep embodying truth. Your vow is to see that clearly and to not make it worse, to not add to the harm, not add to the violence, if your parents were, let's say, completely awake, they wouldn't cause harm. Anyone that you see who's being harmful is because they're suffering. And so you see the result of their suffering, some of which may get on you. You're not, your job isn't to take it. 
Your job is to take care of yourself and be compassionate to yourself as well. You are included in that bodhisattva vow. I'm going to free myself from suffering and free myself from delusion, not be foolish, not put myself in harm's way. So are you saying almost it's like try the best you can um, in honoring that vow, like to be as non-reactive as you can in, in conjunction, in relationship? You're going to, you know, it's all improv, improv. And you have to be skillful, though. Sometimes it's useful to respond. Sometimes it's not. But you don't want to cause more harm. You don't want to be violent. That was Dr. King's, you know, don't meet aggression with aggression. You have to understand that if they are limited in the way they're responding to you in ways that hurt, only means that they suffer. If they weren't suffering, they would care for you in a different way. And one of the other things has been like just radically accepting them for who they are, limitations and all, and just This is honoring. where hope gets in the way. If you hope yeah. for them to be different parents. Yeah, no. I, yeah, I just the things are never going to change. So I have to radically accept they are who they are. Then you can come to the edge of compassion, which is basically brokenheartedness. It's like, oh, not only I see that they're, that's who they are, they live with that for the rest of their life. Their limitations, their difficulties. It would, if you put yourself in their body, is, is that what you'd want to live with? Probably not. It's not a, a damning feature of them. It's sad. And so your care, your compassion for them is to understand that, their limitations. Not to put yourself in harm's way if it's harmful. But to understand that with, that's wise. Oh, that's who they are. Compassion is offer what you can, take care of yourself. This is the way it is. You're not going to have a better past. It won't be any different back then. And you're in charge, you're an adult of how you want it to be now. You're responsible for your life. Yeah, I get. I think I get hooked up on my Catholic lineage and the commandments of respect thy parents, you know, and and um. What's I think more it respectful was, than not yeah. being violent toward them? Right. It, Very it's, respectful um, to not add to the violence. Well, and even adding to the violence, I think what I'm hearing too is sometimes adding to the violence is if I keep giving in to some of their ways, yeah. that's creating violence. For me so that's it's right. you know holding to boundaries too is very important i know it's yeah. that it's just a yeah the commandment says honor it doesn't say submit to like it says honor them they gave you life that's a big deal so honor that they gave you life as imperfect as it was and this is how you're living it and for you right now, that's very poignant. Yes, it is. Yeah. This is a very, very powerful question that you're asking, which I'm sure many people resonate with as well. We send our healing love to you. Thanks, Flint. And you might want to look at the chat as well, Carolyn. We might have time for just one more person. Hello, Suzanne. Hello, Flint. Thank you for your lovely talk. Um, all through it and in the ensuing moments, I am thinking this is a request really to believe in an alternate reality. Um, this notion of believing, uh, having faith in the human condition and um, faith that nonviolence will succeed mm -hmm. and love will come. And it seems almost um, a science fiction to me right now and I'm having a very difficult time um, moving to a place 
where it's not just an abstraction. Mm -hmm. I, I really don't know how to embody uh, a reality that doesn't involve a very, very flawed human condition, myself included, yeah. that does not seem to be able to transcend into any place other than a, a very difficult and violent situation, a, a very polarized situation. Yeah, we're so immersed in it. Yes. So uh, my question is, um, my plea, my hope is, <laughs> um, help me to figure out how this is not some kind of exercise in uh, heaven. Well, let me just ask a, a brief question. I don't. Uh, what was your experience in watching and listening to Matt? Oh, that was on a very personal level. That's how you that do it. Okay, so that's the only way you can do it. Okay, it's one person at a time. So you listen to Matt and you see his vulnerability and you're touched by it. And in right. that moment, everything that your plea wants is available. Okay. And then you go back to conceptualizations and you go back to the news and, it's like, ah. right. and then, you know, and so, then you come back to, to John saying, oh boy, you know, and then Car Carolyn who's struggling for her life and dealing with her, you know, and each person's entry point, and now you and me. Mm -hmm. I see your your face comes on, and I just I get a smile. It's like, oh, Susan, you've been such a faithful and good. You keep coming and keep coming and keep coming. I love the way that you offer your plea in an embodied way. This matters to you. It matters to me because. Um... I'm finding it very difficult to be present with the realities. Of, it is hard. It is hard. Um, Imagine when Dr. King was walking across the bridge, yeah. holding hands with people. It's like, how do you face that, knowing that it's not going to change in your lifetime? That's that's my problem. It's not going to change in my lifetime. It's it not going to be different. It may not. But if and we so, don't put our little drop of good in, if we don't practice, it does, as he said, bend, I think. Maybe not exactly the way he said, but it does bend. And everyone suggests that. I, I, um, I, I'm not sure that I accept that. You don't have to. Keep practicing and see. But, um, I do appreciate this notion that it has to be person to person. And hopefully pretty soon, more persons will be person to person. I hope so. And whenever your heart opens to one person in front of you, it's totally actualized. That's a blessing. It is, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yes. And so now we're gonna um, repeat the four practice principles, which are the reflection of exactly what we've, we've spoken about. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering. Holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher. Being just this moment, compassion's way. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering. Holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, Life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. Thank you so much for being uh, with me and with each other today and for your wonderful uh, vulnerability in coming forward and for all those who didn't come forward but felt that they were right with everyone. We are actualizing uh, this vow together. Jessica. Thank you all.
Appamata's programs and facilities are supported through your generosity and every bit that you do really makes such a difference. So thank you all so much. If you'd like to make a contribution to Flint or to Appamata, you can do so on the website at appamata.org. Please feel free if you'd like to continue uh, to be together and discuss some of these topics to head over to the after inquiry link on the Appamata calendar. Thank you. <laughs>